I've been knowing you for some while. That's true. And you've always had a tinkling of soul. Every day I, I try to describe soul. Maybe you mm-hmm. can hum eight bars of what soul represents. He'll never grow old. If you're returning, it's nice to have you back. And if it's your first time listening, then welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. So first, I want to apologize if you can hear my AC blasting away right now. It's currently the Sunday before Memorial Day, and our AC has been broken since Friday. But because it's a holiday weekend, they won't be here for at least another day to fix it. So... In the meanwhile, it's just been blowing out hot air. Mind you, this is especially heinous because I live in the lawless swamp that is Florida. Every single day in Florida, there's 100% humidity and it's hot as the devil's butt crack. So until at least maybe tomorrow, I will just be helter sweltering away over here. But in the meantime, I am pretty excited about our story today. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite singers, but I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. I didn't actually realize that he was one of my favorites until I kept hearing his music and then I ended up shazamming it, you know, to like find out who it was. Um, most recently I'd heard his music in Orange is the New Black because I had started rewatching it and I actually finally finished the last season of it. Great show, by the way. But the first time his music like really caught my attention was at the beginning of the movie Gerald's Game, which is based on the book by Stephen King. It's a great movie, even better book. And I actually have a solar eclipse tattoo as part of my Stephen King sleeve. Before we start, though, I do want to take this moment to ask for your help in a missing persons case. The tragedy of missing and murdered indigenous women is a serious issue that's only recently been brought to the widespread attention of people in the U.S. Although there was almost 6,000 missing indigenous women and girls in 2016, this number is inaccurate because of the sheer amount of cases that go unreported. So I want to briefly tell you about a missing indigenous woman named Kimberly Iron. According to Andrea Cavalier's reporting for NBC News, Kimberly Iron was 21 years old when she went missing. She left her Billings, Montana home on September 22, 2020, leaving her three children behind with their grandparents in Hardin, Montana. Kimberly grew up on the Crow Indian Reservation in Montana with her family, but for most of the prior year, she'd been staying in Billings. On September 22nd, she contacted her father, Curtis Iron, from Las Vegas, Nevada, and from Oxnard, California. That's where she was contacting him from, saying that she was upset and needed money to get home. Curtis Iron said that Kimberly never gave him her exact location and would go silent for days. He said the calls that were made were brief and that his daughter was always on speakerphone. She told him she was okay, but he didn't believe her. Each time he would try to call the numbers back, he said that they were disconnected. Kimberly last contacted her father, who lives in the Crow Indian Reservation, on October 6, 2020, but no one has seen or heard from her since. A missing persons report was filed with the Bighorn County Sheriff's Office in Hardin. Captain Jay Middlestead stated that Kimberly's disappearance is being investigated and is considered an active missing persons case. Kimberly is 5'2", she weighs approximately 126 pounds, she has brown eyes and light brown hair, and she also has a small scar between her eyes. 
anyone, anyone listening who might have information on Kimberly's whereabouts is asked to call the Bighorn County Sheriff's Office at 406-665-9780. Her case number is 20-01288. And I'll be sure to include a link with her information and photograph in the show notes, along with all the source material for this episode. When we get back from the break, we'll get into this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M S underscore M E M E N T O underscore M O R I I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. A brand new cherry red Ferrari purred softly in a parking lot. The car was empty except for a bottle of whiskey on the floor and a copy of the black Muslim newspaper, Muhammad Speaks, on the back seat. Above the idling car, in the darkness and chill of the December night, a neon sign read Hacienda Motel. Beside it, hand-painted, read $3 and up. The motel was managed by a woman named Bertha Franklin, who was an ex-madam. At 2 a.m., Bertha was in the office squaring away strewn papers and receipts. At around 2.35, a handsome young gentleman came through the doors of the motel lobby looking for a vacant room. Bertha brought the man over to her sign-in book so that he could write his name down. As Bertha peered over the man's shoulder, she spotted a young woman with long dark hair exiting the Ferrari. She then told the man that he would have to put Mr. and Mrs. instead of just his name. The man obliged without an argument, and Bertha dropped the keys in his hands. As he and the young woman left to their motel room, the red Ferrari continued to idle in the parking lot. Bertha figured that the couple would be checking out in no more than an hour. Bertha got back to her business, shuffling papers and preparing for the next day's work. Her telephone began ringing. She picked it up off the cradle and held it to her ear. It was the motel owner. Twenty minutes quickly went by while she was on the phone. It was easy enough to get stuck on the phone with the boss. As she shifted the phone from one ear to another, she heard a knock at her door. She excused herself from the phone call to open the door. It was the same man she had just checked in recently. He asked her if she had seen his lady friend, to which Bertha replied, No, she's not in here. It was at this same time that another phone rang across town. This time, it rang in the local police precinct. Hello, the young woman said. Will you please come down to this number? I don't know what street I'm at. The telephone number is PI 7-9984. That's a telephone booth. The police operator asked the young woman what the problem was, to which she replied, well, I was kidnapped. Back at the Hacienda Motel, Bertha Franklin was still talking to her boss when she heard a car drive up from the rear of the parking lot. There was a knock at her door again. 
Bertha peered through the barred window where guests registered and saw the man again. Although she could only see him from the waist up, he seemed to be wearing a jacket with no shirt underneath. Is the girl there? he asked. I didn't see no girl, Bertha answered. Let me in to look then, the man posited. Bertha told him that the police were the only people allowed to come in, to which the man replied, Damn the police. With that, he started working in at the locked door, banging at it with his shoulder. The frame quickly ripped loose, the latch gave, and he was in. The man, bare legs showing, strode past Bertha straight to the kitchen and then searched the bedroom. He stomped out of the room, clearly exasperated by his lack of findings, and grabbed Bertha by the wrists. Shaking her, the man demanded to know where the girl was. Startled, Bertha fought back and the two fell to the floor in a scuffle. The man was on top of Bertha, and as she struggled, she tried to bite him through the jacket. She scratched and bit, scratched and bit, anything to get the man to loosen his grip on her. When she finally got up, she gave the man one swift kick to the side. She ran and grabbed her pistol off the TV stand and shot the man at close range three times. Clutching at his now bleeding chest, the man exclaimed, Lady, you shot me. Bertha thought the three bullets would be enough to put him down, but it didn't seem to stop him. He ran at her again. Thinking on her feet, Bertha grabbed a stick and hit him in the head. The stick was so flimsy that upon hitting him once, it broke in half. Bertha's phone, still with her boss on the other line, was dangling off the hook. She hastily grabbed it and told her boss to call the police. The first cop on the scene kept everything as it was until detectives could arrive. The apartment was a mess, and there was blood all over Bertha Franklin's turquoise house dress, but she appeared unharmed. The gun was on a table next to the TV with three live bullets in it and three empty casings. The broken stick was on the floor. A half a block away, in a phone booth, the police discovered 22-year-old Lisa Boyer. She showed the police where she had thrown the dead man's clothes under a nearby stairway. She was then taken to the precinct to tell her version of the night's events. Lisa Boyer said she'd met the man for the first time that evening at a dinner party in Hollywood. He'd offered her a ride home. She'd accepted, but they'd decided to have a drink at a nightclub first. Though the man did not appear to be drunk, at the club he got in a heated argument with another man who'd begun to chat Lisa up. She was quite shaken, and after the argument, she asked him to please take her home. They'd left the club at two in the morning as it was closing, but instead of turning north toward the motel where Lisa lived, the man headed down Santa Monica Boulevard to the Hollywood Freeway. As he gunned the sports car, she asked again to be taken home. He pulled off the freeway into Figueroa Street in a tough section of South Los Angeles. He drove into the parking lot of the Hacienda Motel where Bertha Franklin registered him. Lisa then claims that the man dragged her into the motel room. Lisa told police that the man latched the door behind him and pushed her onto the bed, ripping off her sweater and her dress. She told police that she knew the man was going to rape her. He then undressed and went into the bathroom. In a fearful hurry, Lisa picked up her clothes, shoes, and handbag, opened the latch, and ran out the door. In a panic, she knocked on Bertha Franklin's door. Not getting a quick enough answer, she left. She pulled on her sweater and walked up the block, then dumped the rest of her clothes on the ground and got fully dressed. 
Tangled among her clothes were the man's shirt, sport jacket, and pants. She left them there, ran into a phone booth, and called the cops. She told police that she had no idea someone shot the man. The police nodded as she finished up her statements, and their scribbles stopped as her story did. To them, it was a routine incident, just another dead black man on the south side. They took the body to the county medical examiners where it was logged in at 4.15 a.m. Black male, approximately 25 years of age, measuring 5 feet 10 in length, weighing 162 pounds, with black hair, brown eyes, and dark complexion. At around 6 a.m., they notified the family. The widow greeted them with hysterics as two young children were rushed out of earshot. An autopsy was performed at 11 that morning. The blood test showed 0.14% ethanol, which, according to the examining doctor, might have affected the man's judgment. There was no sign of narcotics. The body was then placed in Crip 19 until it could be claimed. The headlines in the papers that Friday morning, December 11, 1964, were about the release of 19 white male suspects in the killing of three civil rights workers in rural Mississippi. The second lead was Dr. Martin Luther King's acceptance of the Nobel Peace Prize. By mid-afternoon, the dead man's body had been transferred from the morgue to the People's Funeral Home on South Central Avenue. That evening, the LAPD got a clue that this was not just another shooting. Dozens of teenagers began milling around the scene of the killing, playing music, singing songs, refusing to disperse. There was a hurried two-hour coroner's inquest, which found the shooting to be in self-defense. Then the case was officially closed. The next day, banner headlines in one of the papers in Los Angeles declared that the ruling had enraged thousands. An estimated 80,000 people, most of them black, most of them crying, viewed the body. Of these, a funeral director reported to the papers, quote, none seems to believe the story behind the killing. The funeral at Los Angeles's Mount Sinai Baptist Church was packed to the brim with swarms of people. As the mourners left the church and walked down the rainy streets, music came rolling out of hundreds of apartments. You send me, chain gang, twisting the night away, bring it on home to me. The songs raged against each other in a great mess of sound. The only thing holding them together was the common thread of an extraordinary voice, intimate, slightly rough, with a characteristic quaver to it. A business associate issued a press release describing the deceased as, quote, a happily married man with deep religious convictions, not a violent person, and added that the official version of his killing was, quote, entirely inconsistent with the type of person he was. A newspaper from Baltimore announced a cover-up in the shooting. New York's Amsterdam News had a front-page article full of specific questions about the night's events. The Forward Times in Houston revealed that Lisa Boyer was a call girl and Bertha Franklin had been arrested several times previously, and over $15,000 was missing from the dead man's sport coat. The Chicago Defender began a five-part series on what it called the mysterious death. Subsequent events only heightened suspicions. A month after the shooting, Lisa Boyer was arrested in a vice raid on a Hollywood motel and charged with prostitution. 
1979, she was found guilty of the second-degree murder of her ex-boyfriend. It was later revealed that the Hacienda Motel, which offered $3 per hour rates, was known as a hangout for sex workers. Bertha Franklin, an ex-madam with her own criminal record, was forced to quit her job after receiving several death threats. Two months after the death, the widow applied for a marriage license to wed an underage friend of the deceased. Rumors flew. The dead man had been set up by the mob, or by his jealous wife. The shooting had actually taken place elsewhere. The more time that passed, the more convinced the dead man's friends became that the official version of the death was a lie. Personally, politically, financially, the man had been right at the brink of realizing his enormous potential when he had not fallen. You couldn't convince those who knew him of that. You couldn't convince them that all his charismatic power had ended with an unclaimed corpse, hand upraised, fingernails ragged, a look of terror on his face. This man had a name, he had a past, and he had a purpose. To believe that he was just another dead black man was to deny all that, to deny history, to say that nothing had ever changed or ever could. Driven, daring, and captivating, Sam Cooke was an artist who blended sensuality and spirituality, sophistication and soul, movie star looks, and indisputable musical singer-songwriter talent. Sam's father was Reverend Charles Cook Sr. His grandparents had been born in Mississippi as slaves. His parents, like almost all their immediate neighbors and three-quarters of all black farm families in Mississippi, lived as best as they could under the sharecropping system. Sharecropping is a type of farming in which families rent small plots of land from a landowner in return for a portion of their crop, to be given to the landowner at the end of each year. Different types of sharecropping have been practiced worldwide for centuries, but in the rural South, it was typically practiced by formerly enslaved people. Within the Southern economy in disarray after the abolition of slavery and the devastation of the Civil War, Sharecropping enabled white landowners to re-establish a labor force, while giving freed black people a means of subsistence. However, the system severely restricted the economic mobility of the laborers, leading to conflicts during the Reconstruction era. The Cook family owned no land as sharecroppers. Charles Cook's father couldn't read, and the children worked in the fields as soon as they were old enough, so they were lucky if they got a month of schooling a year. Charles Cook would become the family's first full-fledged preacher. He didn't become rich preaching, but the work had a degree of prestige that he couldn't find anywhere else. Although he did get married and have a child, his first wife died. A few years after his wife's death, while preaching at a holiness convention, he spotted Annie Mae Carroll singing in the choir, who was five years younger than him. Her mother had died in childbirth, and she had been raised by an aunt in Mound Bayou, Mississippi, where she worked as a cook in a private home. The courtship wasn't as lightning quick as it had been with his first wife, but soon enough Charles Cook had made the trip out to see her kin and propose. The two were married on November 15, 1923. Samuel Cook, Charles and Annie May's fourth child, was delivered by a midwife in Clarksdale at 2.10 in the afternoon on January 22, 1931. He was one of five boys and three girls. 
Samuel grew up in Chicago's Bronzeville neighborhood after his parents received an assignment to pastor the Little Church of Christ Holiness. Unlike his parents and their parents before, Sam received a formal education starting with Doolittle Elementary School. It was always his parents' top priority to ensure that their children receive opportunities they themselves did not. Years later, Sam would admit, quote, My family was poor, but my father provided me with all the necessities. He tried to raise us the right way. In Bronzeville, in the midst of the Depression, poor but honest parents like Charles and Annie Mae Cook would tell their children that all they needed could be found in the home, the church, and the school. But the truth was, you barely survived walking that line. You got the necessities, as Sam put it. If you wanted even a little more, you had to stray. As a grade schooler, walking home from Doolittle, Sam strayed at the corner of Cottage Grove and 35th. The streetcars changed there, so you usually got a good crowd of people. And if you waited until closing time, there'd be even more. Factory workers and women coming back from being maids and cooks in the white people's houses. Sam would climb up on a tub he'd look to the streetcar spot, maybe have a friend bang on a guitar, and he'd sing. Not church songs, but the pop tunes of the day. I don't want to set the world on fire. The crowd was amused by the little kid with the sweet, thin tenor and the wide smile. His brother, Elsie, recalled Sam lining up popsicle sticks and saying to him, quote, This is my audience, see? I'm going to sing to these sticks. He was just seven years old at the time when he voiced his life's ambition. Quote, I'm going to sing and I'm going to make me a lot of money. His early singing and training came from the membership in the choir of the church and confined to gospel music. While attending Wendell Phillips High School with a straight-A average, Sam, together with two brothers and two sisters, performed as a gospel group calling themselves the Singing Children. For Bronzeville family, sending a child through high school was something like sending one through college a generation later. It meant sacrificing a wage earner for four years and banking on a future where what a child learned might actually be more important than skin color. In his early teens, he formed and became the lead singer for a quintet called the Highway QCs. His early career was defined by his embrace of gospel music, joining the Soul Stirrers at the age of 15 and serving as the group's lead vocalist until 1957. Sam electrified the congregation with smooth, lilting vocals, thus establishing a devoted following who embraced tracks such as Nearer to Thee, Touch the Hem of His Garment, and Jesus Gave Me Water, among others. In 1957, Sam recorded his first solo record, Lovable, under the pseudonym Dale Cook, in an effort to avoid jeopardizing his standing within the gospel community. Nevertheless, it was clear that the time had come for him to pursue a career beyond the soul stirrers. At the height of his fame in the gospel world, and with the blessing of his father, he began the transition to popular music. You Send Me his earliest secular single, shot to the top of the pop and R&B charts. It was the first of 29 top 40 hits for Sam and solidified his place as a commercial artist and innovative pop stylist. By 1958, Sam was in high demand due to his newfound solo success. He signed with the William Morris Agency and appeared on numerous television programs, including the Ed Sullivan Show. That same year, 
he performed for the first time at New York City's world-famous Copacabana, a nightclub previously off-limits to rhythm and blues singers. While admittedly unprepared for his first appearance at the nightclub, he had initiated the process of opening doors previously closed to black entertainers. In 1960, he signed with the RCA where he wrote and performed hit after hit, including Chain Gang, Bring It On Home To Me, Cupid, Another Saturday Night, and Twistin' the Night Away. Versatile in his musical stylings, Sam tackled everything from ballads and pop to rock and roll and rhythm and blues. Forging the distinctive link between soul and pop music, he created a diverse repertoire with universal appeal and captivated his audience regardless of their race, age, or religion. For a man with practically no formal musical training, he had a remarkable ear for every element in a recording. Cliff White, who played guitar on practically all of Cook's recording and concert dates, recalled that Cook, quote, heard the whole thing, the music, the background, and how they work together. He had no regard for the rules and regulations of music. He thought as a performer, not as a musician. He wanted a particular sound. Nothing else would do. Sam also had the incredible ability of being able to pump out successful songs quickly. One year, he found himself celebrating Christmas with a performer and producer named Lou Rawls. While at Rawls' stepfather's house, he wrote the song, Everybody Loves to Cha-Cha. He just watched what everyone was doing and wrote it in a matter of minutes. Sam was also a savvy businessman. He quickly established himself as a successful entrepreneur who changed the mainstream music industry with the founding of his publishing company, Cags Music, and the launch of his own record label, Sar Records. He also began producing records and writing music for other artists, helping several make the transition from gospel to pop, including Bobby Womack, Johnny Taylor, Billy Preston, and Lou Rawls. As a black artist at that time, he was a pioneer and true inspirational force in his community and throughout the music industry. He also wrote most of his own music, which was uncommon at the time. Eager to be embraced as a crossover artist, he returned to the Copacabana for a week-long residency in 1964. Rehearsed and confident, their performances were a huge success, and the recording of Sam Cooke at the Copa went straight to the top of the Billboard Hot R&B chart. Sam's refusal to perform for segregated audiences led to what many have described as one of the first real efforts in civil disobedience and helped to usher in the brewing civil rights movement. A visionary artist who forged a link between soul and pop, he had a diverse repertoire and a platform unlike any other. Unfortunately, all good things truly do come to an end, and tragedy had stalked Sam Cooke long before his death. His first marriage was to Dolores Elizabeth Milligan Cook in 1953. She graduated from Fowler High School and was a singer and exotic dancer who performed under the stage name Dee Dee Mohawk. Saturday night, March 21st, 1959 was a regular shift for Dolores. After getting off her job as a cocktail waitress in Fresno's Chinatown, she stayed out drinking until half past midnight. When she left the bar on G Street, some of the other customers offered to drive her home, but she refused. Instead, she got into the 1958 Oldsmobile convertible Sam had given her and careened through Fresno's quiet streets. She ran a man in a motor scooter off the road. Then, going between 65 and 70, she lost control, glanced off a parked car, jumped the curve, 
and still accelerating, bounced off a cedar tree and into the corner of a house at 2331 Kirk Avenue, not far from where she lived. Thrown across the width of the car, Dolores hit her head across the handle of the passenger door and fractured her skull. She died in a local hospital. Although they divorced a year prior to the time of her death, Sam paid for her funeral. In November of 1958, before Dolores' accident, Sam was in a car crash himself. Sam, singer Lou Rawls, his guitarist Cliff White, and his driver Eddie Cunningham piled into Sam's brand new yellow 1958 El Dorado convertible. Sam sat in the front next to the driver while Lou and Cliff got in the back. Sam's next gig was 300 miles south in Greenville, Mississippi. The main road in between, Highway 61, was wide open, flat, and straight. Making connections between one-nighters, the band was always running late, but Eddie Cunningham knew the roads like a truck driver. So trusting in Eddie, the three entertainers immediately dozed off. As the car sped through the winter dark, Eddie sped at 140 miles an hour. Soon they were just across the river from Memphis, near the little town of Marion, Arkansas, at almost the exact same spot where blues singer Bessie Smith had her fatal car accident 21 years prior. Eddie had begun drifting out of his lane while speeding, and directly in front of him down the way was a big truck. Eddie pulled back into the right lane, only to find it blocked by another big truck, a farm truck whose driver had stopped to check his load of soybeans. With nothing to gauge by along the straight two-lane but the unlit southern night and the sound of the wind, it was hard to tell what was moving and what wasn't. Eddie tried to make it into the opening between the two trucks, with the space getting smaller by the millisecond. Cliff White, who had woken up during the drive, noticed what was happening on the road. In a split-second decision, he grabbed Lou and pulled him down. As the car impacted, Lou hit the back of Sam's seat and Cliff went down behind Eddie's seat. The yellow convertible, going full bore, plowed into and under the parked soybean truck, shearing the top right off the El Dorado, windshield and all, leaving little more than a tangled iron knot. Eddie Cunningham was jammed against the driver's seat by the steering wheel. The edge of the wheel had gone through his stomach right to the spine. He died in surgery two hours after the accident. Sam, Lou, and Cliff were hospitalized with minimal injuries. They were taken to Crittenden Memorial Hospital in West Memphis, Arkansas. Everyone around town knew the place was segregated and knew that Sam Cook wasn't going to get the right kind of care or be safe until he was out of there. Conditions like these had fueled the rumors about Bessie Smith, that she had died because she had been refused adequate treatment after her Highway 61 crash. At the time of his car accident, Sam was engaged to a woman named Barbara Campbell. Their wedding had been postponed due to the accident, but nearly a year later, a date was set. They had first met at Doolittle Elementary. In 1963, a year before his own death, Sam Cook's infant son Vincent, one of his three children, drowned in the family pool after wandering outside and falling in. At Sam Cook's open casket funeral, friends like Etta James and Muhammad Ali were shocked to find his body badly beaten. Etta James didn't see how hotel manager Bertha Franklin could have caused such injuries that seemed absent from Sam Cook's cause of death. Quote, 
His head was nearly separated from his shoulders, Etta James wrote. His hands were broken and crushed, and his nose mangled. In Chicago and Los Angeles, 200,000 fans lined the street to mourn Sam Cooke's death, and Ray Charles performed at his funeral. Sam's most profound and impactful career moment would be the release of his first posthumous single, A Change Is Gonna Come. A bold and inspiring statement and song, Change is regarded as the anthem of the civil rights movement for which he intended, and one of the most profound compositions of the modern era. In 2007, it was selected by the Library of Congress as one of 25 recordings inducted into the National Recording Registry for Preservation that year. Sam Cooke lived his life at the center of cultural change. He was there when gospel music's coded message of hope and rebellion bloomed into the civil rights movement. His sound, soul music, helped spread that message out into the mainstream culture. When people say Sam couldn't have died as he died, part of what they're saying is that his life meant something different. They hear how often his secular music called on the future, just as his gospel music had called on the Lord. Because Sam Cooke died just as that future was speeding closer, it's tempting to read his end as a premonition of how the politics of the 60s eventually played out. But finally, what Sam Cooke did is more important than how he died. His achievements were all about crossing over, whether it was passing through the restrictive covenants around Bronzeville, going from gospel to pop, integrating the Atlanta fairgrounds on Dick Clark's show, or making it at the Copa. Sam Cooke was interred at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. His headstone reads, Until the day break and the shadows flee away. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next story from the mortuary. Oh, and just like